Hey listeners, I recently launched an ad-free Serial Napper feed so that you can enjoy the podcast without interruptions. Elevate your Serial Napper listening experience by joining my Patreon community and get yourself an ad-free feed on Spotify. For just $2 a month, you can become a member today and unlock ad-free episodes while still supporting the podcast. It's super easy. Just visit Serial Napper on your Spotify app and click the button at the top that says exclusive episodes for subscribers. Don't use Spotify for your listening? No problem. Just visit patreon.com slash Serial Napper to get your episodes ad-free and enjoy uninterrupted storytelling while you get your naps in. Mother's Day is almost here. Have you found that truly special sentimental gift for your mom yet? Don't worry, I got you. MyLifeInABook.com is a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Here's how it works. Every week, MyLifeInABook.com will send her a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions that you want to ask. And then she can either type her response or use their voice-to-text feature And MyLifeInABook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges that she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and your children can treasure forever. Your mom has given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. I loved this idea so much that I've started my own My Life in a Book for my children to have. The thought of my son and daughter being able to learn about my life story as they grow into their own adulthood is truly special. It's been an enjoyable journey of self-reflection for me too, with questions like, which one event made the greatest impact on your life? It's brought back memories I didn't even know I had. I love it, and I know your mother will too. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use code SERIALNAPPER at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use code SERIALNAPPER for 10% off today. Hey everyone, my name is Nikki Young and this is Serial Napper, an international true crime podcast. I'm back with another true crime story to lull you to sleep or perhaps to give you nightmares. Dana Laskowski was a 36-year-old single mother of 9-year-old triplets. Despite having a massive amount of responsibility on her plate, she was the kind of person who always had her door open if you needed a bite to eat, a place to crash, or just someone to talk to. Which is why it was so shocking to everyone who knew her when she was discovered on her couch, twisted and contorted in a strange position, strangled to death. When you open your heart to everyone, you risk allowing some bad seeds in, which unfortunately is exactly what would happen to Dana. Investigators looked at several of these bad seeds to see if maybe they were responsible for Dana's horrific death, but it wasn't until they found a journal with an entry that read, 
kill someone plus get away with it, that the case would be cracked wide open. This is the story of the murder of Dana Laskowski, a nanny who loved life, but sadly let a wolf in sheep's clothing get a little bit too close to her. So let's jump right in. Dana was born in 1965, and she grew up in Puyallup, Washington, a small city of around 40,000 people, just 35 miles south of Seattle. As a child, she was described as one of the happiest kids alive. She absolutely loved life. She was the kind of person who could make friends with literally anyone, and that carried all the way into her adult years. Dana was also incredibly artistic, a talent which she inherited from her father, Bill, who was an award-winning artist with a successful career in architectural illustrating. It was more of a hobby for her, though, with Dana wanting to grow up and someday open her own daycare center. She was a great listener, very motherly and nurturing, the kind of person you could completely trust your children with. More than anything, Dana wanted children of her own. In 1989, she would meet her husband, Sam, and the pair quickly fell in love, got married, and began to try to build their family. Sadly, they struggled. Due to medical reasons, month after month would pass, and Dana would fail to become pregnant. Sam and Dana would go through years of trying with the assistance of fertility treatments. It was expensive, it was difficult, it was a long process, but eventually it worked. It worked better than anyone had imagined. Dana was pregnant with triplets, and she would give birth to three healthy babies in 1993. She was over the moon excited to be a mother. It was something that she had always dreamed of. However, triplets were a challenge. The three babies were very much wanted and prayed for, but the situation of having three children all the same age, it put strain on Dana and Sam's marriage. After spending 11 wonderful years together, they decided it was time to separate. Dana would get her own place about three hours away from where Sam lived, and the triplets would go to live with her. Dana and Sam would share custody. Dana really enjoyed this time in her life. She was still young, and she was incredibly beautiful, and she finally had a bit of independence in her life. Because of having to care for three of her own children, she decided that it was time to fulfill her dream of having her own childcare business. She would open her own babysitting and nanny services. It was one of those families that she worked for who would alert the police that something might be wrong on the day of August 31st, 2001. On this day, Dana had failed to show up for work at her nanny job. The parents of the children she was supposed to be caring for called the police when she was a no-show and they couldn't reach her by phone. Dana had never called a day out of work sick, and she had certainly never just not shown up for her shift. It was highly unusual, so they asked the police to do a welfare check. An officer would arrive at Dana's home at around 11 a.m. that morning, approximately three hours after she failed to show up for work. The officer knocked on the front door, calling her name and yelling out that it was the police, there to make sure that she was okay. 
The officer received no response in return, so they walked around to the backyard and they found the back door was ajar. The officer walked in, looked around the home, and stopped when they got to the living room. There was an adult female lying on the couch, unresponsive. They were able to visually identify the female as being Dana. She was lying in a really strange, contorted, unnatural state. There were obvious abrasions to her neck and a small pool of blood in her mouth. And there were additional abrasions to her elbows and her knees. There had very clearly been some sort of struggle. One of her arms was underneath her head, while the other was placed behind her back, and she was twisted at the waist. It looked like someone had wrestled with her, twisted her in this sort of chokehold position, then strangled her and just left her in the position that she died in. There was a blanket and a pillow placed on top of her body. Typically, people who die of natural deaths won't be found in this kind of twisted position. They would be found lying on their back or their stomach. So right off the bat, the officer who found her called it in as a likely homicide. Dana's house was an absolute wreck. It appeared that someone may have broken in and then completely ransacked the place. All of the drawers and the cupboard doors were left open. It looked like someone had been looking for something, searching for something, though it was unclear if anything specific had been taken. Investigators processed the scene and they collected several pieces of potential evidence, including hairs and fibers that were found on the body and around the house. They also fingerprinted anywhere that the killer may have touched. There was blood spatter or blood droplets found on the carpet and a basement window had been broken, potentially the way that the intruder was able to get into the house. It was apparent that there was some kind of struggle and the basement window may have been the point of entry. Dana's autopsy would reveal that she died of strangulation. Her throat had been almost completely crushed, leading the police to believe that the killer must have some substantial upper body strength. It would have taken someone who was very strong to be able to inflict that kind of damage on her throat, all while pinning her down while Dana would have fought back. I think a lot of people underestimate the kind of strength that's needed to strangle a person to the point of death. It requires two to three minutes of constant pressure cutting off the airways of the throat in order to actually kill them. It is a slow death, it takes constant strength, and it's a very personal way of killing someone. When Dana's family learned the news of her murder, they were shocked. I mean, it is shocking, obviously, to hear of anyone being killed, but Dana in particular didn't have any enemies, she didn't live any sort of wild lifestyle, she was a single mother of three who was responsible and held down a job, and everyone seemed to really like her. She was always warm and welcoming to just about everyone, which sadly may have led to her demise. Dana's employers, the couple who called the police when she failed to show up for her nanny job that day, thought that they might know who did this to her. It was one of the biggest reasons that they decided to call the police to do that welfare check. They said that Dana had been stalked and harassed by a man that they knew as Patrick, 
Patrick was a cable installer who had worked in Dana's neighborhood. He had installed cable for her home, and oddly after that, he became fixated on dating her. Dana was not interested, and she kindly let him know that, but it didn't seem to stop Patrick from trying to pursue her. He would leave her these letters, these lengthy love poems, and flowers on her car and outside of her home. Her employers were aware of a very scary note that Patrick had recently left Dana that said that he had been watching her. In the note, he named something specific that she had done in the privacy of her home, something that he would have only known if he had truly been watching her. This note terrified Dana so much so that she told her friends that if she were to turn up dead, Patrick was the one who did it. I can't understand this kind of behavior. Guys, girls, this never works. It's creepy, it's overstepping, and it's totally unacceptable. Don't do it. Get a puppy if you feel like you need unconditional love. Investigators decide to pull Dana's phone records, which confirms that Patrick has been constantly calling her in recent times. Calling her much more than anyone should ever call another person. So investigators, they need to speak with Patrick. They learn from a witness who lived in the neighborhood near Dana that a white van was seen driving around the area during the hours of Dana's murder. Police learn that Patrick happens to drive a white van. So this sounds like a solid lead, and they're able to get a couple of search warrants, one for that white van and then one for his house. They show up to serve him the warrants, and he is not happy that they're there. He doesn't want them going into his vehicle or searching his home. He doesn't want to answer questions. He wants them off his property. When they fill him in on why they're there, which is in relation to Dana Laskowski's murder, his tone completely changes. He appears to be shocked and genuinely really upset to learn that Dana has been killed. And apparently at this point, his attitude completely changes. He offers up his DNA, his fingerprints, a hair sample, and he answers the investigator's questions. Patrick admits to having this romantic interest in Dana, but he says that he has an alibi for the time at which Dana was killed. He went to work, then he hung out with some of his friends, and then he went straight home to bed. The police were actually able to confirm his alibi, and there wasn't anything found in the searches that would connect him to Dana's murder. He was just a creep, not a killer. With Patrick now off the list of suspects, the next person that investigators want to speak to is Dana's ex-husband, Sam. Thankfully, the triplets were staying with him at the time, so they were safe, unharmed, and they didn't have to witness the violent death of their mother. Still, the police had to speak to Sam, and now they couldn't find him. They couldn't get him by phone, and he wasn't at home. Initially, it was believed that Sam was on the run with the triplets, which made him suspect number one. While police were trying to track him down, Sam actually calls them himself. He tells them that he's been away with the triplets for the weekend on a camping trip. He had no cell phone reception, so it wasn't until they all returned home and he had service that he was able to see the very many messages and phone calls that he had regarding Dana's murder. 
He is called into the police station for questioning, and according to those who were interviewing him, he appeared to be very upset about Dana's death. He seemed cooperative, and he did answer all of their questions. Sam would describe his relationship with Dana as cordial. Obviously, things weren't perfect between them. They were separated and heading towards divorce, and they were now living three hours apart. But according to Sam, they made it work. They had to co-parent their triplets together, so they kept their relationship a positive one. Sam denied having any involvement in Dana's death. It was believed that Dana had been killed at some point between midnight and 7 a.m. on August 31st. According to Sam, on that evening, he ran out to get gas at some point, leaving the kids behind at home. He had a receipt to prove it. He said he arrived back home after getting the gas, and he stayed home the rest of the night with his kids. The following morning, they left for their camping trip. My family is getting ready to make a big move across the ocean to a place where English isn't the spoken language. This isn't my first rodeo, so I'm making sure I'm fully prepared by learning the language ahead of time. Sure, I know I can use an app once I get there, but you'd be shocked by how much gets lost in translation. I want to talk like a local, which is why I'm excited to use Rosetta Stone, the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone truly immerses you in the language you want to learn and has been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, and more. Rosetta Stone helps you to think in the language you're learning using an intuitive process that's designed for long-term retention. Their built-in True Accent feature gives you feedback on your pronunciation so that you're easily understood by native speakers. They have convenient desktop and app options, so you can learn on the go, and they offer a lifetime membership that includes all 25 languages at an incredible value. And now you can save even more with 50% off. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Serial Napper listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Sunnier, warmer days are almost here. Why not get a head start on looking and feeling your best this summer by trying something new like Factors No Prep, No Mess meals that are ready to eat in just two minutes. Get a helping hand to meet your wellness goals with Factors chef-crafted meals that include different nutritional options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Healthy meal planning has never looked so good with Factors Fresh, Never Frozen meals that are also dietitian approved. No matter how busy you are, Factor can help kickstart and maintain a new healthy routine by making it easy to enjoy nutritious meals on the go. Plus, you'll never get bored eating the same thing every day because they offer 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week. 
We're talking restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon, because eating healthy doesn't have to be boring. Personally, I love not having to overthink what I'm going to eat every single day, because that's half the battle. And I don't have to bother with shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. But the best part is, these meals are delicious with ingredients you can trust. Crush your wellness goals this May. Head to factormeals.com slash napper50 and use code napper50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code napper50 at factormeals.com slash napper50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. So Sam had an alibi, but definitely not a solid one. His alibi basically came down to being at home sleeping with three nine-year-olds in the house who were also asleep at the time. While Sam lived about three hours away from Dana's home, it would not have been impossible for him to sneak out of the house while the triplets were asleep, kill Dana, and then sneak back into the house before they woke up. While Sam was retelling the details of his alibi, investigators noticed that he had abrasions on his knees. When they asked him about it, he said that they were from playing baseball, nothing more. But the police weren't so sure. They thought that Sam could have been angry that Dana left him and moved hours away from him with their children. Maybe he came over to her house, maybe to talk about custody arrangements. They had an argument, and he killed her out of anger. Again, strangulation, a very personal crime. So this would kind of fit. Sam denied killing Dana. So the police asked him to supply a DNA sample. They wanted his fingerprints and a hair sample. Sam was very reluctant to do so. And he almost appeared to be irritated over the idea that he was considered a suspect. Police were not getting anything further out of Sam, so they decided to take a closer look at the other people in Dana's life. They learned that Dana had an on-again, off-again, long-distance boyfriend who lived in Vancouver, Canada. His name was Michael, and the pair met while Dana was visiting a friend in Vancouver. They tried to maintain this long-distance relationship, but it was complicated. It wasn't just the distance between them. According to those who knew the couple, Dana thought that Michael liked to party too much. They lived very different lives, with Michael basically living this bachelor lifestyle and Dana being a single working mother of three. She had responsibilities that had to come first, and Michael liked to just have fun. So they would fight about it all of the time and briefly break up. During one of these splits, Dana wound up having a one-night stand with a local man. Police thought that maybe this could be enough motive for murder, so they went to Canada to talk to Michael. Again, in speaking with Michael, he appeared to be devastated over Dana's murder. He was very emotional when speaking about her, calling her the love of his life. Investigators asked him about that alleged one-night stand that Dana had, and if it made him angry with her. Michael tells them that he already knew about it, they had talked about it, and they had worked it out. 
So police ask him his whereabouts in the early morning hours of August 31st, when Dana was murdered. Michael confesses to speaking with her the night before she was killed, and he says that the conversation didn't end the way that he wanted it to. It was a weird vibe, and when he told her that he loved her, she didn't say it back. It seemed like she had her guard up. After they hung up the phone, it began to really bother Michael, so he decided that he was going to just hop in his car and go see her. Unfortunately, he didn't make it there because he was turned away at the U.S. border. He had an unresolved legal matter, so the border agents wouldn't allow him entry into the States that night. Police were very easily able to confirm this with border services, so Michael had an airtight alibi, as airtight as they come. And that unnamed man, the one that Dana had this one-night stand with, he would also be ruled out. He had an alibi that put him far away from the crime scene that night. It was another dead end. Investigators were beginning to get frustrated as each person of interest was ruled out one after the next. They take a closer look at the other people in Dana's life, friends and family who may have attended her funeral. One of the items that they look at is an in-memory book that was placed at Dana's funeral. One of those books where those who were in attendance could write down their sympathies, their prayers, and any nice memories that they have of her. As investigators flipped through the pages, one entry in particular caught their attention. It was written by Dana's 17-year-old niece, Amanda, and it read, quote, I'm sorry I wasn't a better niece for you. 34 days clean and sober. It's all for you. The part that caught their attention was the apology. Why was she apologizing for not being a better niece? It made them wonder what exactly she had to be remorseful for. The relationship between Dana and her teenage niece Amanda was always a very close one. Both ladies were artistic, so they bonded over that. However, Dana was also kind of like a second mother to Amanda. Amanda would be described as a troubled teenager. She drank a lot, she did drugs, and she hung out with the wrong kind of crowd. She also frequently ran away. Her parents would kind of shun her. However, Dana really leaned in. She wanted to help Amanda in any way that she could. She became the aunt that you could turn to for anything. The one you could be honest with, say anything to. Amanda would often turn to Dana whenever she needed help. Dana's house became somewhat of a safe haven for Amanda and even Amanda's friends. The group she hung around with was rough around the edges, but Dana had an open-door policy. They were all welcome in her home. She would often leave the back door unlocked in case any of them wanted to come in, grab a bite to eat, or do some laundry or have a shower. Amanda's best friend, Emily Lawnberg, in particular, spent a ton of time there. The two teen girls would stay over, they would eat dinner, and just hang out with Dana. Dana welcomed Emily into her life as a second daughter, too. It didn't matter to her that the young girls were going through really difficult times, not making the right decisions. Dana was just that kind of nurturing person. She wanted to help them just by being there for them. With Dana and her niece Amanda having such a close, positive relationship, investigators wanted to find out 
what Amanda was sorry about. They called her into the station for an interview, and right off the bat, Amanda said that she had no idea what had happened to her aunt. She simply wasn't there. She spoke of their close relationship and how her Aunt Dana had welcomed her and her group of friends into her home and her life. This group was known as the Park Rats, which was basically just a collection of teens and young adults who spent the majority of their time hanging out on the streets. It was known to be a rough crowd, one that often got into trouble. Investigators thought that maybe a member of this troubled group, a friend of Amanda's, could have been involved in Dana's death. They asked Amanda if there was anyone in this group of friends who was particularly strong enough to carry out this kind of murder. And Amanda gave the name Blaine. Blaine had a violent past and an extensive criminal history of gun and drug offenses. According to Amanda, Blaine had also been physically violent with her in the past. They were sitting on the couch together and she rejected his advances and he basically turned on her. She also claimed to have seen Blaine on the morning that Dana's body had been discovered and she said that he had scratches on his arms. It's kind of suspicious to me that she would hold on to this information until being specifically asked about it, especially if she really loved her aunt as much as she claimed that she did. Blaine was now living in another state, and investigators had a really difficult time tracking him down for an interview or trying to extradite him back to Washington to request a DNA sample. So they decided it would be easier to talk to associates of Blaine to see if anyone knew anything related to the case. And when they connected with a friend of Blaine's, one who was now behind bars, they would be pointed in a completely different direction. According to this friend, it wasn't Blaine who killed Dana Laskowski. It was 17-year-old Emily, Dana's niece Amanda's best friend. This was the story. According to several members of the Park Rats, this was the story that they had all been murmuring and whispering about. Emily was the one who killed Dana. This statement was pretty shocking, considering that Dana had treated both Amanda and Emily like daughters. Like Amanda, Emily was also going through a rough patch in her life. She was estranged from her parents and battling a really bad drug habit. It was discovered that Emily's nickname was the Mutant because she was incredibly strong, especially for a female. Most definitely strong enough to strangle Dana to death on her couch. However, police really only had this person's account connecting Emily to Dana's murder, so they brought Emily in for questioning. In their interview room, Emily was smug, cocky, and confident in her answers to police that she had nothing to do with Dana's death. Yet she avoided any questions regarding where she was on the night of the murder. She had no alibi and no explanation. Police were able to get a search warrant for Emily's home, and when they conducted the search, they found two very notable items— the first being a black t-shirt that actually belonged to Dana. Emily had stolen it from Dana's closet and had worn it to her funeral, as seen in photos from the funeral. 
It was a really strange thing to do. And police thought that it could have been Emily quietly bragging about what she had done to Dana. The most important thing that they found was a journal entry written by Emily. Inside one of the pages, they found an entry titled, 10 Things I Want to Do Before I Die. One of the items in this list read, Kill Someone Plus Get Away With It. According to this journal, Emily was at least thinking about killing someone. But of course, it doesn't mean that she actually went through with it. She could have been joking, venting, or maybe she changed her mind altogether. But when they find another entry in the journal, this one is an angry rant about an argument that she had with Amanda. It read, quote, I could effing strangle that bitch like her aunt. Not quite a confession, but I mean pretty close. Still, investigators needed more. If multiple members of this friend group were aware that Emily had killed Dana, Amanda, Dana's niece, was likely aware too, especially because the girls were supposed best friends. The prosecution used this knowledge to their advantage, and they threatened to charge Amanda with conspiracy after the fact, unless she started talking about what really happened. The threat worked, and as it turned out, Amanda had more than just secondhand knowledge about Emily killing Dana. According to Amanda, she and Emily were high on drugs that night. They needed more money to score more drugs, so they went to her Aunt Dana's house to ask if she could give them or loan them some cash. They went in through the back door, and they were confronted by Dana. Emily was rude to Dana, and Dana refused to give them any money and asked the girls to leave. Dana gently touched Emily's arm to guide her towards the back door, and that's when Emily snapped. She lunged at Dana, throwing her onto the couch and putting her into a wrestling hold. Then Emily grabbed a piece of fabric, like a scarf, and she wrapped it around Dana's neck. Amanda said that she couldn't watch, so she turned her back. She heard a crack, then gurgling, and then silence as Dana died. The two girls then took the money and they left, leaving Dana on the couch in that twisted position, dead. In exchange for her testimony, Amanda would have no charges laid against her, which has always been really controversial. She was there when her Aunt Dana was killed, and she did absolutely nothing to stop it. She told nobody, no authorities, no investigators what had happened after. This statement by Amanda would be key in charging Emily, as most of the evidence that they had in the case was circumstantial. Initially, Emily was going to be tried as an adult, facing first and second degree murder for this vicious killing. However, the prosecutor's office still believed that they would have a tough time convincing the jury that Emily did this, mostly due to her size and the sheer power that it would have taken to kill Dana. So, in a shocking turn of events, they offered her a deal where she would agree to plead guilty to manslaughter, which carries a much lighter sentence. In the end, Emily would be sentenced to serve only six and a half years in prison for the very violent murder of Dana Laskowski. I don't know every single thing about this case, so it's difficult to say whether or not the prosecution made a mistake here. 
Should they have gone forward with the first or second degree murder charges? They had Amanda's statement against Emily, but they also lacked any physical evidence to actually connect her to the murder. I couldn't find any information regarding the evidence that was collected, like the fibers and the hair, the ones that were collected from the crime scene, and whether or not they were tested and matched Emily. But I'm guessing if they were tested, they were not a match. Obviously, I think that they would have likely moved forward with the murder charges. But that's just my opinion. I don't know. Emily would be released from prison after serving her six and a half year sentence. She would go on to get married and have children of her own. She also changed her name, so she's just really trying to move on with her life. Which begs the question, what the hell is wrong with this world where we give only six years of prison time to a killer? A killer who had a bucket list that included killing someone plus getting away with it who used all of her strength to crush the throat of someone who was kind to her. So what's your opinion on this case? Do you think that the prosecution should offer this much smaller sentence in exchange for a secured conviction? Or do you think that they should wait until they have a more solid case, more evidence to move forward with the trial? Let me know what you think. That's it for me tonight. If you want to reach out, you can find me on Facebook at Serial Napper. You can also search for me on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check me out on Twitter at Serial underscore Napper or I post things on TikTok. Serial Napper Nick and that's all one word. If you're watching on YouTube, I would love if you can give me a thumbs up and subscribe. And if you're not watching YouTube, that's okay. But if you want to check out my video content, you can check that out at Nikki Young Serial Napper all one word. Until next time, sweet dreams, stay kind, especially in the comments. Bye. I'm Dean, I'm the dad. I'm Laura, I'm the mom. And I'm Crystalyn, I'm the daughter. And together we are... Family Plot! The Family Plot Podcast, a show where we discuss history, folklore, true crime, and the paranormal. Minus all the oogie bits. We are PG-13. I'm almost 15 now. Don't ruin the commercial. Do... Catch us looking into special topics like the origins of fairy tales, Sherlock Holmes, and the trial of Dr. Hyde and Mr. Swope. Find out who Dad Man Crush is. Or what happens in Krista's corner. But behave you two. So come be a part of the fam. Available on Google, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Family Plot Podcast. Bye!